Well, greetings and welcome to The Dividing Line. My name is James White, and I'm coming to you from um, somewhere out in the middle of West Texas, sort of. Um, yeah, cause I, I will leave Texas tomorrow, so I'll have covered the 885 miles. When you cross, I, I noticed this time, uh, when you cross the border from Louisiana on the 10 into Texas, the next exit is exit 885. And then it counts down to exit one because I happen there's a RV park that I've stayed at a number of times uh, on exit one. It's the last exit in Texas before you enter New Mexico on the ten. So 885 miles. That's not a that's not a state. That's a nation. That really <laughs> really is. And it's gonna take me three days to get across it. But uh, the, there you go. And normally it would take four if I was driving carefully and comfortably. But uh, we're trying to get home uh, as soon as we possibly can. And um, and there you go. Oops. Uh, there you go. I prefer that. There you go. Anyway, little buttons, little, little teeny, yeah, I need glasses. Anyways, uh, so we are heading home. And uh, so this should be the last of the uh, road trip dividing lines uh, this time around. The next road trip will start um, the day after Thanksgiving. And it won't be as long, but it'll be back to St. Charles. And then going through Kansas City, we actually have two churches in Kansas City. I'm going to see if they can work together or do a midweek and then toward the end of the week type thing on the way back from uh, St. Charles uh, in uh, late November, early December. And uh, then uh, the next one is the big, huge February debate marathon, conference marathon, teaching marathon. Um, probably not wise to do this, but we're doing it anyways um, thing. And um, uh, so there you go. Uh, that's what's uh, coming up as far as traveling is concerned. And that includes uh, the two debates with Trent Horn, uh, the debate with Dale Tuggy, the debate with uh, Leighton Flowers, and the debate at the um, uh, conference in Tullahoma where Tom Buck's going to be speaking. Sam Waldron's going to be there. Uh, going to be a much larger conference than it was last time because uh, we've got a larger place to hold it in uh, this time in Tullahoma. So uh, look up uh, Post Tenebrous Lux and Jeffrey Rice and get the details on the February uh, conference that is uh, coming up. Um. Uh, I I was up in the middle of the night last night, and I caught up on, I don't know if my phone just wasn't updating properly or whatever, but I, I caught up on the blog and May blog article that Doug Wilson did last week, um, where he responded to Owen Strand and talked about kinism, and also talked about the um, interesting terminology, memorials, uh, that the CREC is considering, or I guess probably considered last weekend, that I, I got the feeling from the way that Doug expressed it, I haven't contacted Doug to ask him about it, uh, but that someone had snuck this stuff out, uh, the uh, memorials. Uh, basically, position statements. Uh, I'm not sure why they use that terminology. I'm sure it has some history to it. But um, in any case... Um, it now part of it was I was listening to this at three o'clock in the morning, uh, but I guess of, of 
you know, I saw a lot of commentary about it when I was at G3, but couldn't follow most of it because I was very busy while I was at G3. Um, there were just a couple things that struck me. And the, the one thing, just trying to step back and look at all this stuff, there are people that are criticized in the CREC for what it's saying and why it's doing something. But could we all just sort of step back just for a moment and realize, compare the clarity of the statements from the CREC that they are debating and discussing um, and, and, and putting out there. Compare that with the ERLC. Compare that with the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, compare that with almost any denomination as far as their willingness to actually take on incredibly um, no-win topics in our society. I, I guess that's the way to put it. I mean, uh, real, it really is a no-win situation to try to address things from a biblical perspective, as far as the left is concerned, and and Doug's right, we're we're not trying to curry favor with the left because you can never do it. He told the story of the you know, the guy that had the BLM sign up at his house, and the guy wanted to go up and complain because it wasn't big enough. Uh, you put the BLM sign, it's going to have to get bigger and bigger and bigger until it you know takes over the house. That's just that's just how the left is. It eats its own, as anybody can tell, and. Uh, but I, the thought just crossed my mind. At least someone is has the guts to actually talk about this stuff. Now it was interesting. Also, you know, Doug was basically saying to Baptists, um, and he sort of meant he sort of included Reformed Baptists. Uh, Y'all need to develop some type of political theory. Well, yeah, in a sense. Now, he was saying, we have our Presbyterian political theory. I don't think the PCUSA is aware of that. <laughs> um, so what he means is we have a conservative Presbyterian political theory, but it is not universally held by any stretch of the imagination. And in fact, even amongst Presbyterians is a, a minority perspective. And then you've got a number of people amongst the Presbyterians that... You know, they're anti-Van Til, anti-presuppositional, they're Thomistic, stuff like that. So you've got all sorts of divisions amongst uh, Presbyterians as well. But he was rightly saying, you all need to think through exactly where you're going to be going with this. And I think underlying that was because we're sort of picking up numbers from you guys right now. And maybe, um, of course, I would, I would go... If you change your views on baptism and church government because of current political developments, that's sort of backwards. That's that's not a not a good direction to go. Uh, no matter what happens in the next election, or no what no matter what happens in Western culture, Hebrews eight still says what Hebrews eight says, and we'll always say what Hebrews eight says. <laughs> so, um, if you change with the winds with that, um, that's, that's probably not a good thing, but you know, uh, all, all credit to the CREC for 
being brave enough to address these things um, and, and to do so openly. And there was another thing, you know, I was going to queue it up, didn't have time. I was queuing up other stuff, as you're going to see here in a second. Uh, but Doug threw out a pretty strong challenge. And it, it, it basically, basically what he said was, um, if, if you're going to stand there and talk about the sufficiency of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, stuff like that, then, and, and he is, this is sort of a theme that he has spoken on many times, there can't be any difficult passages of Scripture for you. There can be things that are hard to understand, but there should be no, no tough passages. If it says it, you believe it. And he used as the example um, Philemon and Onesimus. I guess he's doing a commentary on Philemon. And he's basically saying, are you going to, are you going to do what most people in the West have done and just ignore those books and hope no one notices them? Um, or are you going to say that it was possible to be a godly, obedient slave owner? Because you have them in the New Testament. They're addressed in Colossians and they're addressed in Philemon and elsewhere. Um, and there are a lot of people who just don't even want... Don't even want admit that the question exists and it really that's one of the steps that you take to eventually saying well you know scripture was for back then and it's not really for today so combine that with what happened uh this week at um andy stanley's church and the in essence side b Christian, gay Christian movement stuff that was being presented um, at Andy Stanley's church. And you start seeing, once again, how all this goes back to what your view of Scripture is, where you stand on its sufficiency, and whether you, where you stand on whether God is big enough to inspire Scripture so that it remains sufficient even in the modern period. There's a lot of people that will talk about scripture and talk about its history and how wonderful it's been. But when you, when you boil it all down, they don't really believe that an ancient collection of multiple books by multiple authors can really be um, the ultimate source of divine revelation for the church. They don't, they don't believe it. And when you don't believe that, you're going to have to go other directions. And there's only a certain number of directions to go. Uh, there's liberalism or leftism. Um, there's traditionalism. And, you know, just a, an abandonment of biblical authority at all, which is really what liberalism ends up doing one way or the other. These are all major issues. They're all big things. And... Uh, I think it was uh, Al Mohler who wrote a uh, article last week. Uh, well, eleven days ago now, uh, the train is leaving the station. Andy Stanley's departure from biblical Christianity. That goes over this conference there. Had we told you about the conference like a month and a half ago? 
um, there were some folks there that have sent me some information that actually attended it. But we knew from who was speaking, um, David Gushy and stuff like that, that this is this is going to be a sort of side B gay Christianity perspective, similar to the debate that we had um, just a few weeks ago in, in Mannheim. And um, so it will be interesting to see the final sermon from Stanley. I haven't seen it yet, uh, but it will be interesting to see exactly where he goes. But the conference says, and they have major influence amongst a number of other churches. So you're going to see that. And, and again, I say this to everybody who listened to the debate. A, a lot of people have uh, commented on how the debate was different than what they expected. And, and I, everybody who would listen to me knows that's what I was telling people. That the simplistic answers that we have for the gay Christian argumentation are just that. They're simplistic. They're not going to survive much of a nuanced argument. And so I knew that there could be a lot of people that were listening to it and wondering, why are you all discussing the things you're discussing? Because that form of argumentation just isn't all that well known to people. And uh, we're going to have to get to know it better and better uh, as, as time goes by. So just a couple thoughts uh, off the top. Uh, I was going to do a driving line today and do the dividing line this evening. Uh, I was going to record something while driving. I got about 10 minutes in and I went through one of those. I don't know what they are, but you go through them too. I, I can tell you right where on I-17 in Phoenix. You, you go you go under the bridge at Thomas on I-17 southbound or northbound for that matter. There's some kind of a signal stuff going through there and your Bluetooth will cut out. It just does not matter it will cut out every single time you go through this particular part of the freeway. And so I was recording on my phone, but it was through Apple CarPlay. And it just disconnected and stopped recording. Well, you know, you might say, well, can't you just pick up on the other side? No, I can't edit stuff while I'm driving, obviously. And the whole point of recording something while I'm driving is you've got one file. I can, I can kick that up to, to Rich and go from there. So that one was ruined. And then I, then I plugged in, uh, so I was hardwired. So that wouldn't happen again. And I'm nine or 10 minutes in and rich calls. <laughs> and of course it, you know, it shuts off as soon as the phone starts ringing. And so I just took that as providential uh, indication that I was supposed to do a driving line today. And so I just, just gave up on it. Um, but I was, what I had started talking about, was some stuff I had run across. There was a uh, tweet that I had been... <clears throat> um, I, I think someone threw it into a thread that that really wasn't the topic, and that happens a lot, you know, and normally I ignore them. You know, it's not really the coolest thing to do is throw those things in there. But I happened to see this one, and what caught my attention was that it said, Former Calvinist. We know a few former Calvinists. <laughs> and I've said more than once, I'm 
really, really, really done with the um, the Calvinist club. Um, I don't I don't care if uh, I'm considered to be a part of that club any longer or not. I haven't felt I haven't cared about that for about seven years now. And I love Reformed theology. I don't necessarily love what can happen under the name of the Reformed community. Uh, there are jerks everywhere, and there are jerks who are Arminians and Pelagians and don't know what they are, and there are jerks who are Calvinists. And it, it just seems, though, like Calvinist jerks are better at it than most others. And so... So, when, when someone says they're a former Calvinist, I want to know what they're referring to. I was thinking today, I think I became a Calvinist. In other words, understood the, the terminology and what that meant. And as I've said many times before, my dad's systematic theology textbook was written by a Presbyterian. So, there was always an element of Reformed stuff um, in my in my upbringing. So that was unusual for in the IFB. So there was a little bit of a mixture there. And, um, but I, I think it's been about 37, 38 years, maybe 39, uh, but pretty close to four decades now. I've been in the reformed realm. I've written numerous books on the subject. We do Radio Free Geneva. Uh, and so during that time, we've encountered many a former Calvinist. And we've very often had to comment on, wow, for someone who's a former Calvinist, they sure do talk funny. <laughs> Nobody in my church would ever say things that they say they believed. Uh, so I wonder what's going on here. And you know, I've I've talked to former Protestants that become Roman Catholics or former Christians that become atheists and and there are certain patterns. Um and you know when you when you reject a perspective, it's somewhat expected that you're gonna sort of represent it in the least most favorable light. Uh, when you do represent it. But still, especially with quote-unquote former Calvinists, I go, what did you, why do you think you were a Calvinist? What what made you a Calvinist, specifically? And it does raise the question, you know, after the young, restless, and reformed movement and stuff like that, do we have a lot of people who think they're Calvinists who are actually completely ignorant of the foundations of Reformed theology, the, the, the main reasons to believe. Uh, there is a, it is a, a concerning thing that in some ways Reformed theology became the cool thing. You know, the beards and the, the, uh, the stogies and the... Uh, scotch or whiskey or whatever and and it's the cool thing well it can never be cool because it's fundamentally opposed to human ego and human pride and once it becomes cool it will inevitably become a shadow of 
the reality. And so you, I really do wonder how many people actually identify themselves as reform, but couldn't possibly accurately represent uh, what it actually means to be reformed. It does cause me to wonder. Um, and so uh, I went ahead and downloaded this this fellow, and I had it took me a while to do some digging because he doesn't seemingly use his name much. Much, uh, Jason Breda, B R E D A, um, recorded um, five videos. Uh, recorded five videos, and uh, I downloaded the first two, and they're fairly lengthy. They're well done. Uh, there's sort of a split split screen thing where he's over on this side and then you've got an area for text, which is highly effective. It also makes it easier to find stuff. You know, I was looking for a specific section in the second video. I haven't listened to all of them yet. Couldn't. Uh, they were fairly lengthy and I started listening to them and then I was going to do the driving line and other stuff happened. But... Um, it was. It made it a lot easier. Like when you're using the, um, the you know the scan feature, you can be watching that text thing, uh, to see what you're you know what's being discussed and things like that. So it that is a nice thing to have, I suppose. Um, but it started off talking about total depravity, then to election, and he says he gets into decretal theology later on, which, of course, from my perspective is. And, and in fact, immediately upon listening to stuff, I just realized this is just a utterly disjointed jumble of stuff. It jumps from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. It, it would be next to impossible to respond to it in any meaningful fashion because it's just, it is not logically or coherently laid out at all. Um, and, and if, and it's certainly not meant to communicate with someone like myself or anyone that I've taught uh, because what's the, what's the foundation of Reformed theology? It's, it's God's sovereign decree. You've got to start there. You've got to start with his timelessness. Um, You've got to start with what I preached on um, at G3. Um, what, a week ago today? No. Yeah, today's Friday. Yeah, a week ago today. Is that all right? A week ago? Wow. Okay. Uh, where I, I preached from Isaiah chapter 41 on God's sovereignty over time. You've got to be dealing with the issues of open theism. You've got to be dealing with the issues of God's knowledge. You've got to be, and you've got to do so biblically. So you need to be making biblical arguments on the nature of God before you go anyplace else. And it's interesting. I, I think he makes he's making reference to me. I, I saw a section when I was scanning through stuff where he talked about um, God-centered versus man-centered. And that's exactly the case. That's exactly what this is about. And he starts in the wrong place. You, you start in the wrong place, you're not going to end up in the right place. And, you know, his big thing, I think he's been influenced by Ken Wilson. So he's got a bunch of stuff on Augustine that was, you know, 
a lot of genetic fallacy stuff and just erroneous. I mean, all of Ken Wilson's stuff is. Uh, we've demonstrated that. Uh, but it it really is um, fascinating to listen to someone who claimed to have been a Calvinist for 10 years. He's left this, the church he was at. He talks about how much he loves the people there, and stuff like, but he's left that church over this issue. And I'm listening, and we get to a certain point, and um, how am I going to do this here? Uh, this was the point we got to. There's a whole section here, and I, I just don't know if I have time to go through all of it. Um, let me back it up just a little bit here. Um, yeah, here we go. All right, let, let's just pick it up here, and and I'll, I'll let you see what we mean. Um, make sure that we get this here. Yeah, that should work. All right, let's see if this is going to uh, this is going to work for us uh, at all. Uh, and I need to turn the volume down, or it's going to feed back on me and stuff, and that's not a good thing. That's the only thing I wish we could work on here. But all right, uh, let's let's see how this uh, this works. Since Adam have all sinned, everyone that's a Christian and faithful to the Word of God, Holy Scriptures, the Holy Bible would affirm everything that I just said. Here's where total depravity adds something into this. It's also referenced as total inability, which is not only emphasizes all points in the biblical definition of depravity in what it conveys, which I just mentioned, but would also add that being spiritually dead also makes it impossible to believe, which means it makes it impossible for anyone to have faith. So in order... Okay, just real quickly. One of the things that caught me uh, listening to this was he never made the distinction in what I listened to between faith and saving faith. You can have false faith, you can have faith in falsehoods, you can have temporary faith, all sorts of things like that. Uh, the sower and the, and the seeds and the soils, you can have all this stuff. But what you cannot have is that which is pleasing to God. And that is true repentance, and saving faith. And the proper, focused upon the proper uh, object, etc., etc. There's lots, lots of folks that have other kinds of faith. But it doesn't seem to make that distinction or even really understand why that's important. In order to have faith in Christ, God must grant regeneration first, and then he grants the sinner faith to believe. And so, in other words, uh, man is dead in sin, and incapable of doing what is pleasing to God, Romans chapter 8. Um, okay. They are born again. So both views espouse the fact that sinners do not contribute to their salvation, but total inability adds the element of not even being able to believe. And that if you do believe, by your own will, you are performing a work. That's what the Calvinists would say. They, they would say that if you believe out of your own free will, that is a work. Okay, you know, this, this is very common. And if we're talking about what separates who is saved from who isn't saved, and it looks like we got our little teeny tiny box back again. Oh, well, let me do about that today. Um, 
And in fact, I could. Genie, we need it, me. Um, if if we're talking about this, is what's going to distinguish you from someone who isn't saved. Uh, is this free will act? Okay, but it's not like this is fulfilling law or fulfilling requirements and 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 stuff like that. It, I do know there's some Calvinists that make that argument, but that's not that's not the point. Um, the The point should be based upon God's freedom and what that means. What does it mean for God? What does it mean for God's grace to be free? That's that's the issue, um, not just the idea of well, this is some type of work salvation concept. And the scriptures talk very heavily about can't work towards salvation. Total inability would emphasize that there is a bondage of the will. This is what took place at the fall. That your will is never to believe the gospel, never to believe in Christ. Even if the gospel is preached to you, unless God intervenes, unless God provides regeneration and, in, and deposits faith. So, in other words, um, what he's talking about, and he even has it on the screen, Martin Luther. This is the first debate of the Reformation. It's Luther versus Erasmus, and he's now on the Roman Catholic side. That's, that's the point. He's on Rome's side. He, he's not on the Reformation side any longer. He's with Erasmus on this, as are most Protestants. I, I admit it. That's, that's the reality. Um, but Let's make sure that, you know, remember, Martin Luther said about this very issue, the autonomy of the will of man. You, Erasmus, have put your finger upon the hinge, the key issue, the, the hinge upon which it all turns, the bondage or freedom of the will. And by taking the position he's taking, he's rejecting the Reformation. And let's just, let's just be honest about where it's going. Do you, you will not desire, you will not believe. That's what the Calvinist argues. So since this is the case that God has to grant regeneration first, knowing that not all people will be saved, God does not save everyone by his choice. Because we, we know, Jesus said that the road to heaven is narrow and the road to destruction is wide. The gate to destruction is wide and many go that way. We know that, that many will not trust in Christ. That's the majority. Most of the people are not going to be saved. Well, um, in certain eschatological perspectives. <laughs> Calvinists would say that they are not saved because God did not choose them to believe. He did not elect them or select them or predestined. Pre and so again, a, a someone who is reformed for 10 years should know that fundamentally we're talking here with the way he's phrasing all this the way he's phrasing it now is saying that you can demand god's grace and he's gonna say oh no 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 but that's what's being said the reason someone isn't saved is because god did not extend grace to them and hence they received what justice. They received justice. They did not want to turn from their sin. They loved their sin. They loved their autonomy. And God did not restrain them in their madness. And if you object to that, then 
then you're basically saying God's grace can be demanded. Hence, it's not free. It's no longer grace. So a lot of this really has to boil down to what does grace mean? I think that's an important aspect of it. Destinate them to believe. This is true. God owes no one any mercy. And this is a big argument that, that the Calvinists will make. God owes no one any mercy whatsoever. We are all deserving of death. We are all deserving of judgment. That's that's 100% true. Both, but does the scriptures teach us that depravity and the fall brought about an inability? Okay, I, I just want to, while it's still on the screen, because it didn't follow up this, this. However, the heart of God is to see all come to repentance and faith, even false teachers. Um, except Second Peter is also the one that says that these people were decreed. They were set apart to these things. Um, so we know Second Peter 3.9, that's not what it's talking about. We've, you know, Potter's Freedom, the big three, Second Peter 3.9, Matthew 23, so on and so forth. So forth. Um, we've, we've covered all these things. He hasn't covered here. I'm sure he does later at some point. Well, okay. I assume he does later. I don't know that. ...to even believe or recognize that we are sinners. Okay, now I messed that up there. But there, there was the, the, the thing that uh, caught me. Let me see if I can... Yeah, here, let, let's see if this, this comes through. And the fall brought about an inability to even believe or recognize that we are sinners. So, total inability then. He just defined this. If, you, if, if you're totally depraved, a total inability, you can't even recognize you're a sinner. And, and when I heard that, I'm like, everybody recognizes they're a sinner. You, you suppress that, or you embrace it and run with the rebellion. But no, it has nothing to do with whether you can recognize you're a sinner. It has to do with when you recognize you're a sinner, as the vast majority of people do recognize that they are sinners, what will you do about it? What, what is the, what is the uh, predilection of your will? So th this, is, this is what I was talking about. When you, you hear people who claim to have been reformed in the past, and yet they, they, don't, they don't speak as they don't speak the way we speak today. And since this is a recent deconversion on his part, um, you would think he would at least still have the capacity um, to speak the way that he used to speak or to, uh, you know, it, it would be interesting to know what church he was a part of. Um, I'm sure that the, the elders, you know, met with him and talked with him, or, or at least offered to. <laughs> You'd be amazed how many times elders offer to meet with people, and they run off and slander all the elders, and yet they never, never took up their invitation to meet and to speak and stuff like that. But anyway, I, I'm sure that answers were provided at some point. Um. But it's still very hard to understand why people use language as a convert away from a system that they never would have used when they were in the system. If you want to reach the people who are in it, 
And clearly that's what he wants to do. That's why he spent all the time putting these videos together. He wants people to become non-Calvinists like he is. Then why, why do this? I, I don't understand it. Um, and so I didn't, like, like I said, I just saw this this morning. Then I drove hours to get here. I've had very little time to do anything other. We're not doing a Radio Free Geneva. I, don't ha I haven't been able to queue stuff up and go from point to point. And unfortunately, just honestly, in trying to follow his argumentation, it is horribly mixed up. There's no, there's no, it, it would be really hard to respond to this because it just, it's just all over the map. It, it doesn't, you know, you know, at least when we can present Reformed theology, we can present it in a coherent, um, connected, consistent fashion. Uh, this alleged refutation is none of those things. Uh, it's not coherent. It's not consistent. It's um, it's a mess as far as that's concerned. Um, but when scanning through the second video, um, I think I was actually downloading or something, and you know, it takes some time, especially the way we access the internet while I'm on the road. Uh, I think I was just using you know the the feature where you can sort of just scan along and see what's in the video. Well, I saw something about John six. And so I'm like, let's at least take a look at it. Let, let's at least see what, what's here. And so I finally, I found it. And I wish there was a way that I could make this uh, bigger. Uh, I'll be down there in Dedito Corner. Dedito Little Person. Um... I don't know if you can see that. <laughs> the font is pretty small. But there are uh, six points that he seeks to present um, regarding John 6.37. Now, I've lost track, and so have you, of the hours that uh, we have spent in John chapter 6. Um... Walking through the text, and, um, oh, Rich says, very readable. Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> so, I'm not going to do that again uh, right now. I mean, Leighton Flowers and I are debating this in, in uh, March again, so we'll, we'll definitely be going over it. But we have just... I've written books on it, Drawn by the Father. There are chapters in Potter's Freedom, God's Sovereign Grace. And so, as I look at this, I am once again reminded of why I am a Calvinist. <laughs> why I am Reformed. And why I can have Reformed brethren treat me like dirt, and I'm still Reformed. <laughs> because how other people treat you isn't has that should have nothing to do with your conclusions as to what scripture is actually teaching. And so we all know that John 6:37 is in a context. We all know that what comes before and after it is vitally important. But one of the things that I see from quote unquote former Calvinists is that they tend to be atomistic. 
That is, they, they break the text up into parts rather than dealing with it. You know, the, the power of the Romans 9 debate was that I could stand there, well, with this, this exact text, though, I, I know I've showed you all, I've now blued the pages in my, in my uh, Nessialan text, but this exact text open Romans 9, and I can simply walk through the text and go point by point by point, consistently applying the same hermeneutical system. I'm not sitting there going, oh, dear St. Augustine, tell me what to believe. <laughs> uh, anything like that at all. It's the same exegetical standards that I use to defend the deity of Christ, the Trinity, the resurrection, uh, the historicity of the birth of Christ, whatever, justification by faith in Romans, what, whatever, it's the same methodology. It's the same hermeneutics. And when people see that, that's, that's the power of biblical reform theology. So here you have John 6, 37, all the Father gives him will come to me. When it comes to me, I will never cast out. And here are the six points. Here are the six points. All right? Okay. Number one, the purpose and context which we should read the Gospel of John is laid out plainly to the readers in John 20, 31. Well, yes and no. Uh, John cannot expect someone who was listening to Jesus in John 6 to know what John's going to write in John 20, 31. So, but when you get to John 6, you can refer back to the first five chapters and you can trace uh, themes and so on and so forth. That's, that's perfectly fine. But to jump past Jesus' words is to dehistoricize them. It's to make the event there in Capernaum um, pretty much irrelevant, historically disconnected from, from time. And so uh, if all that means that you know, this is so that you may know and believe and understand that Jesus is the Christ and believing have life in his name, things like that, okay. Um, but there's all sorts of stuff in the Gospel of John that's not specifically about that, but that provides uh, foundations and needed context and things like that. Number two, there are potentially two groups of people mentioned in 637. The given are the apostles. This is a theme in John's Gospel, jumps to John 17 that yes, the apostles have been given to Jesus. There's a strong case to be made that Jesus in chapter 6 is only speaking of the present situation and that at this time he knows that the focus is for his apostles and perhaps also the 70 plus followers. It's not until after his resurrection that the focus shifts to all. Let's assume the given are in the first half and the second half of the verse are those who come to Jesus. Okay, here's where it completely falls apart. This is ridiculous. 
this is where eisegesis becomes so patently obvious. Because if you'll read it in its context, Jesus is explaining the unbelief of the Jews who have heard his preaching and teaching. Some of them have even gotten in boats and rowed across the lake to Capernaum to hear him say more. And he has said to them, you are not believers. You are not believing. That's the context. There's nothing about context. Oh, let's jump over to John 17. Let's jump over here. But let's not do what you do in any other text and let the text speak for itself. Let's not walk through it word by word, phrase by phrase, sentence by sentence in the original language. Oh, no, 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 no. That'll lead you to Calvinism. Can't do that. So let's do something completely different. So there are potentially two groups. Really? No. Jesus is explaining why they will not come to him. It's because they have not been given by the Father. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I'll never cast out. Please, please recognize something else. And this is devastatingly dangerous. When you try to get around the plain meaning of Scripture, you end up destroying most of the promises of Scripture. And we've said this before about latent flowers. When you try to get around what John 6 is actually saying, you end up robbing us of, for example, the promise here. The one who comes to me, I will never cast out. Oh, that's just to the apostles, right? Oh, well, no. Um, or in here, what he's, what he's doing is he's saying, so let's assume the given. So the first phrase, all the Father gives me are in the first half, and the second half of the verse are those who come to Jesus, as if these are somehow different groups. We're going to chop a, a sentence up in half and not let the first half of the sentence determine the meaning of the second half of the sentence? I mean, this is astonishing. I mean, this is, this is manhandling the Scriptures. Because the one who comes to me is the one who's been given by the Father. There isn't any way around this. There is no way around this in the Greek language. There's no way around this in the English language. It's a, simp it's a sentence, people. And when you have to start going, well, we've got this group over there, that group over there, da, 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 you clearly just don't want to believe what the text is saying. So, number three, negative Inference fallacy. I'm, I love it when we start getting fancy and bring in them their fallacy arguments. It happens all the time. I can do that too. I prefer exegesis, but I could do that too. Negative inference fallacy. And I know where a lot of this stuff's coming from. And you do too, if you've listened to Radio Free Geneva. You've, you've heard this stuff. You know who he's been reading. Just because the given come to Christ does not mean that no one else can come to Christ. So, right before this, Jesus says, you're not believers, and now he's explaining why they will not come to him. And in verse 44, he's going to say, no one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 
and I will raise the one that I draw up on the last day. I mean, this is the exact opposite of what the text plainly states. And, and I just, I just go, why? I, what, what is the motivation here to get around what's being taught? I, uh, in fact, Jesus says in John 12, 32, that he will draw all men to himself. And again, see, this is, this is what Norman Geiser does. It's what every synergist has to do because they don't believe what John 6 teaches. They just don't believe it. So I'm going to jump out of John 6. I'm going to go to a completely different context. I'm going to go to John chapter 12, and I'm going to read this back in there. And that way I can make it say something that it actually never says. I'm going to talk about the Greeks in John chapter 12 that Jesus never met with. And I'm going to turn John 6 on its head by going and, and making it mean that the people who heard Jesus say these words were clueless as to what in the world he was saying because they didn't have John 12 yet. You see what this does? This is taking a, a potato masher to the text and it leaves it torn to shreds. It's horrible. And I just go, why? There's no reason to do this. There's no translational issue. Nothing. Just believe what it says. So this is the same word used in John 6, 44. Well, it is in a completely different context. The emphasis they make on that verse is the word draw. But the emphasis in that verse is that no one can come unless the Father draws him. So he's talking about John 6, 44. Okay. But the emphasis in that verse is that no one can come unless the Father draws them and he raises every single one he draws the Son up on the last day. That's the rest of the sentence, people. When you have to chop every sentence you're dealing with up into pieces, you are not dealing with Scripture, honestly, at all. Why? What is the motivation? I don't get it. I really, really don't. So we have three points so far that mean nothing. That they are a, a complete waste. Number four, Judas was given to Christ and then lost. So the all in 637 is not all without exception, as the Calvinists would proclaim. Again, one of these, a lot of what I've seen in this gentleman's statements involve fundamental category errors. Not being able to distinguish. Well, you know, if he's going to say, hey, the only ones given to, given to Christ are the apostles, and so since Judas was one of them, then that means he was given for salvation. What? So there's not, a, so apostleship and salvation are the same thing? Of course not. Of course not. And remember, so many, if, if this is how we can now play Jenga with the Gospel of John, to where John 6 is limited to this audience, then John 3 is limited to Nicodemus. Right? Why not? Any of the promises in John 4, the woman at the well. Right? Why, why, can't we, why can't we just go, well, this was a, you know, John chapter 8, all the stuff in there, 
You know, if, if, if the sun makes you free, you should be free indeed. It was just simply Jews that time. has nothing to do with us. Let's just go with the hyper-dispensationalists who only say Acts and Romans are for today or something like that. Let's just throw it all out there. This is just simply an unwillingness to believe. That's all it is. So, um, so the all in 637 is not all without exception as the Calvinists would proclaim it. It's not the Calvinist. It's Jesus. All that the Father gives me will come to me. I will raise them up at the last day. I will lose none of them. That's Jesus speaking. So if you're confused about Judas, you might want to reconsider the misreading that you have put into Judas at this point. That's not the Calvinist. That's Jesus saying but here we have, well, Jesus didn't really mean that. Hmm. All right. Number five, Calvinists are not the given. The disciples are. Jesus has not died and rose again yet. The Holy Spirit has not come, and the Great Commission has not been given. The apostles are not even regenerated and are not understanding many things Jesus is talking about at this point. Who cares? Are you telling me? That the meaning of John 6, because the disciples were confused about it, can't be, can't be plainly discerned by us today? That Jesus was confused? This, this is hermeneutics? No, it's not. You adopt this kind of hermeneutics. It's the end of the resurrection. It's the end of the deity of Christ. It's the end of the Trinity. It's the end of inerrancy. It's the end of the inspiration of Scripture. It's done. It's done. That's one of the big problems about, have you ever noticed how Arminianism over time develops into universalism and into apostasy? There's a reason for that. It does not have within it the bulwark that can stop that. Now, Calvinists can become apostates too. But the denominations, any, there is a natural progression in Arminianism that leads to a degradation of um, the inspiration of Scripture because you do not have a sovereign God who can give you inspired Scripture. If there is a um, reformed people, ref the reformed understanding of God's sovereignty and man's creatureliness has a foundation for explaining how it is that men can speak from God as they are carried along by the Holy Spirit. We don't believe in human autonomy. And so God can use men in such a way as to accomplish his purposes. But Arminianism gets rid of that. Synergism is, as a whole gets rid of that, but Arminianism especially. And so you look historically, and Arminianism has led to a tremendous amount of universalism and degradation of the view of Scripture and so many of these mainline denominations, you know, where did they start heading down the cliff? Is in their view of Scripture. That's where it was. And so, when you listen to what's just being said here, Jesus has not died and rose again yet. Oh, so everything in the Gospels about the nature of the Gospel and the call of the Gospel, uh, the, the, the work of the cross, all this stuff is irrelevant? Is, is that what we're being told? That's absurd. 
The Holy Spirit has not yet come. Yeah? So? The Great Commission has not been given. Hint of that. It's certainly in the Old Covenant. That's the whole point. Uh, the apostles are not even regenerated. Well, exactly how do you know that? There isn't a specific point. I mean, well, the Holy Spirit hasn't, well, Holy Spirit hasn't come in the sense of indwelling them, but you think really when Jesus was dealing with them and showing them from Scripture after his resurrection, the fulfillment of everything, that they weren't regenerated at that point? When did it happen? We're not told. But how is that relevant to John 6? We're not told that either. And they're not understanding many things Jesus is talking about at this point. Well, even Peter said, well, you have the words of eternal life at the end of this. Did they understand all of John 6? Nope, they didn't. Did Jesus? Certainly did. Finally, point number six. We've gotten, we've had nothing to this point. I hope we all see this. There is nothing on this screen that even comes close to even offering the beginning of a meaningful effort to exegete and understand John 6, 37. This is all completely, 1,000% how to get around this. And it's an utter failure. Utter failure. With all due respect to the gentleman, I don't know. I don't know what his motives are. But I can recognize absolutely hackneyed eisegesis when I see it. John 6.37 speaks nothing about eternal life. Okay, if you want to separate it from verses 38 and 39, but the rest of it specifically says, I will raise them up to eternal life. All the Father gives me. I've come down not to do my own will, the will of him who sent me, this will sent, that of all that he's given me, and that's what John says, same context, follow it straight through. No synergist can read through John 6 straight through. They can't do it. It is impossible. And here's a glowing example of it. I mean, over the past 30 years, how many of these failed attempts to get around John 6 have we looked at? I mean, it's, it's just, Algo knows. Algo knows how many we've done. I don't. But it's dozens. And they're all desperate to get around what we've got here. So, I have come down to heaven not doing my own will, but the will who sent me, and this is the will who sent me, that of all that he's given me, I lose none of them, but what? Raise them up on the last day. That's eternal life, folks. So within two sentences, there's nothing about eternal life. However, John 6, 27, 40, and 47 do, and what is the order of these passages? Have we seen this before? Have we seen this before? This is what Geiser did. They cannot walk through the passage, boom, 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 follow the argument. Can't do it. Cannot do it. Because 635 through 39 is going to determine what you do with 40. Has to, if you're going to be honest with the text. With all due respect to this brother, this is the most dishonest handling of this text outside of the hyper-dispensationalist stuff I think I've ever seen. I mean, I'm... Just with, with all due respect, every word on this screen is wasted. It is simply meant to obscure, not to clarify. That's the, this is how to obscure scripture. 
Not how to teach it, not how to clarify. And so, back up a second. What is the motivation? Why? I, I don't know because I don't know the gentleman. I don't know what happened in his life. I don't know. In my experience, there's normally other stuff going on. There's normally stuff within the church. There's normally stuff within their families or their personal lives. That's what I've encountered, but I have no way of knowing in this situation. But you do have to go. If someone claims to have been a Calvinist for 10 years, and then they can manhandle John 6, there's got to be a reason for it. There's got to be a motivation. I have to wonder if someone's not going to send me an email and go, well, yeah, let's give you the rest of the story. Um, could happen. Might happen. Don't know. Don't know. Um, but wow, that was really, really, really bad. I went over an hour already, didn't I? Uh-oh. I had another video to show. Um, well, I can keep it. The world's not going to end. It's a... It's a um, Supposed to be, <laughs> it's supposed to be um, a book review of the Potter's Freedom. It's not. It's a really, really, really bad attempt at ref refuting the Potter's Freedom. But I saw someone posting it, and um, so I was going to respond to it. But you know, I just don't have time to now. We will save that one. I said to somebody on on Twitter, I was going to do so. Sorry. We'll get to it when I get back. Uh, it was only going to spend a couple of minutes on it anyways, and we were just dealing with the important stuff right there. So we're starting to get a cash buildup on the stream anyways, so it's probably time to say hasta la vista so long and look forward to the next time we are with you on the dividing line. And uh, that'll be when we get back to Phoenix right after our 40th anniversary celebration going to be exciting. Thank you so much for watching today. God bless.